If I seem confused, I ask your forgiveness. I fill pulpits in a lot of different churches, and they all have different (laughs) ways of uh, structuring things, and uh, I get lost. Old age, too. But we now come to the reading of God's Word and uh, passage in Luke, and then also uh, we're going to read from Romans 3. Before we read the word, let's pray together for God's blessing on it. Our Father, you who spoke the universe into existence at the beginning, you who sent your Son as the living word, the very embodiment of truth in his human flesh and human nature, You who by the Holy Spirit inspired the words that we are about to read. We pray that you would give us humble and open hearts and minds before you and before the hearing of your word. That your Holy Spirit may bless to us what he inspired to reveal Christ. And the only hope that sinners like us have in him. So help us to hear and to read with understanding, to take your word to heart and to respond as you would have us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We'll read from the Gospel of Luke, and it is from this passage that we will take the uh, sermon, and then we'll also read uh, a support from Romans 3. But Luke chapter 18, we begin reading at verse 9. He, that is Jesus, he also told this parable for some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee Standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And more accurately, that would be, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
And the ruler asked him, A good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. But Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there was no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. May God give us grace to grasp what was said. I'll read a brief portion or portions from uh, Romans chapter 3, just by way of introduction, uh, verses, uh, verse 9, <clears throat> verses 9 and 10. Uh, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. Dropping down to verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at this present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified. We hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Well, it is Reformation Day. But it's not St. Luther Day, is it? <laughs> he's, not, he's not part of the pantheon of saints to whom we might pray. But it is the anniversary of an event in which God in his providence began to bring to light in a fresh and new way what had become more and more obscured for a thousand years. Uh, buried under uh, ritual, buried under confusion about authority, buried under about uh, confusion about uh, where our hope lies. Uh, and what started on the day Martin Luther nailed those theses to the church door and invited the church to consider and to debate and to search the scriptures, uh, because of that, we are here. Uh, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation uh, did not always lead uh, to good things, but one good thing it led to is uh, Reformed and Evangelical churches that cling to Christ, that proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and seek to hold fast to his word. So we give thanks. But the first issue, the first issue of the Reformation was the question, how can a sinner be right with God? Other questions, questions of authority, uh, questions of the, the Reformation of the church, all those came later. The initial question was, how can I, a sinner, be right with God? And our Lord gives us the answer in the answers, when we read, uh, when we when we read uh, from Luke chapter eighteen, so the parable of the two minute prayer, uh, whose prayer does God answer? Point number one. Then the encounter with the rich ruler, the rich young ruler, as other gospels say, uh, who is truly good. And then finally, the encounter in between with the parents and their infants. God's salvation is for those who receive his grace, his kingdom as infants.
Whose prayer does God answer? Well, our Lord tells this parable, about two-minute prayer in the temple, and we hear the Pharisee basically bragging to God about himself. And uh, while the ESV that I read said, uh, standing by himself, he prayed thus. Other translations say, he prayed thus to himself. Uh, I'm rather inclined to favor that second translation because with such words, our Lord is making clear who his real audience was. His real audience was his own ego. His own what? Self-righteousness. So he is telling God all the bad things he hasn't done, all the good things he does do. And surely he thinks of himself as right with God. That he has, by his endeavors to obey God's commands, made himself not only better than others, but acceptable in God's sight. And then there's the other man, the tax collector. He is wretched in his posture, in his stance, in his words. He's at the back of the court, doesn't come to the front. Uh, he doesn't even lift his eyes up toward heaven, but he's, he's beating on his breast. He's, he's in anguish. He's in anguish over his sin. And he was a sinner. If you know anything about uh, the Roman rule and the rule of the Herods over Judah and Galilee at that time, you know that the tax collectors were grifters uh, who made themselves rich at the expense of the weak and helpless. And, and so he was a sinner. And he is convicted of his sin. He's ashamed of his sin. Uh, he considers himself unworthy, and he simply begs God to have mercy on him. Now, mercy is never deserved. If it's deserved, it's not mercy, right? If it's deserved, you earned it, and that's not mercy. He's begging God for mercy. He knows that what he deserves is the punishment of his sins, is to be rejected by God. But he's pleading for God to show him mercy. And comparing these two men, our Lord, in essence, says, who do you think went home justified? I'll tell you, it was the tax collector. He is the one who went home regarded by God as righteous. That's what it means to be justified in, in this context. Regarded by God as righteous and as acceptable in his sight but not the other man. And Jesus' explanation is, for everyone who exalts himself, the Pharisee, will be humbled in judgment, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted to be received and accepted by God as righteous in his sight and as one of his children. Then we turn to the third passage. Who is truly good? Well, we have this young ruler, this rich ruler in this passage. and Another gospel refers to him as young. 
Uh, and he comes to Jesus with what on the surface seems to be uh, a good question. Knowing how to receive eternal life, that's pretty important because you know, eternal life is eternal. You want to be in the right place for eternity, not under the wrath of God for eternity. And so, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus rebukes him. And you might be startled by the rebuke. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Is Jesus saying he's not God and that he's not good? (laughs) No, Jesus is accepting what the man assumes about him. The man assumes that he is an ordinary human being, not the God-man who has come into the world fulfilling all the prophecies for the Redeemer, for the Messiah. No, he is a wonderful teacher, undoubtedly. And that is why I'm coming to him with my question, because I think he can answer my question. He's a good man. But if he is just a man, Jesus says, he can't be good. No one is good except God. And that means you, my friend, asking me, what can I, what must I do that I might have eternal life? You're asking the wrong question. Your question assumes that you think you can do something that will make you good and acceptable in the sight of God. Now, a lot of people believe that about themselves, don't they? Uh, I don't know how many times I've been told by people, well, I'm no worse than the other guy, and I try hard uh, to be a good person, and if that isn't acceptable to God, then I don't know what is. That's, that's a quote, I mean, a paraphrase that I, I've heard many people say to me. Uh, not, not during interviews for communicant membership. Uh, <clears throat> but that's a commonly held view by people. Now, of course, another commonly held view is, is there a God and why should I care? But we're not addressing that one right now. He thinks... He thinks that he is capable of doing whatever Jesus may prescribe him to do in order to make himself acceptable to God and to earn a place in God's eternal kingdom. And in this, he is flat out wrong. And anybody who thinks that of themselves is flat out wrong, misinformed, needs to be set straight. And here Jesus would do that. But he does it in a way that has confused the church down through the years. Uh, He asks the man, you know, the commandments, and he recites many of the commandments. Which commandments? The ones that have to do with horizontal relationships, human to human. Have you committed adultery? Have you stolen? Have you murdered? And so on. And the man says, I've obeyed these commandments from childhood up. So, I'm sure everybody in the community thought of him as a righteous man. Uh, But Jesus says you you lack one thing. To remedy that, you must sell everything you have, distribute it to the poor, and follow me, and you'll have a place in the kingdom of God. 
Now, I say this has confused the church because uh, for a long time, well, until the Reformation, and, uh, and, and now also in, in parts of the church, uh, people point to this as saying that uh, Jesus regards the accumulation and possession of wealth as, as sinful. And if you really want to make yourself acceptable with God, uh, you will turn away from loving your money. Well, that's true. But you will, you'll give your money away, and that will make you acceptable to God. But it's not the money. It's not the money that's the problem. It's not the wealth that's the problem. And it's, it's clear what the problem is when the man is sad because he has great wealth. So he's, he's got a choice. Kingdom of God or my wealth. Kingdom of God or my wealth. Follow Jesus or give up my wealth. And the fact that he will not give up his wealth means that his wealth is his God. He may present himself before his fellow Israelites, his fellow Jews. He may present himself before God in the synagogue and in the temple as a worshiper of God, but the God he really worships, his true God, is his wealth. And he's not willing to repent of that. Our Lord in his word to him has put his finger on his idolatry. Well, uh, we may all have idols of one sort or another. Maybe not wealth. Maybe the high esteem that others might have of us. Maybe uh, a good life. Maybe a secure retirement. All kinds of things that might be so important to us that if we had to choose kingdom of God or this, kingdom of God or this, It might take a real work of the Holy Spirit for us to say, kingdom of God. It does take a real work of the Holy Spirit. As we'll see, moving on. The people hearing, oh, and so Jesus comments. Jesus comments on the man's response as the man goes away sad. Jesus comments on his response and says, it is, it is very difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Very difficult. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and some people have thought, well, not really a needle, but just a narrow gate somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. Who cares? He's presenting an impossibility. And the people are hearing Jesus say this. They're like, what? In their understanding, in their understanding, if somebody is wealthy, God has bestowed blessing on him. God has bestowed blessing on him because God is pleased with him. So this rich ruler who has obeyed the commandments of God, surely he belongs in the kingdom of God. But Jesus says, no, it's harder for him to get into the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And, and this just blows the minds. It's challenging the uh, theology of Job's friends. If you've read Job, it's challenging the theology of the people of his own day. And the disciples, probably the disciples, the other gospels have it, put these words in the disciples' mouths. 
Well, then who can be saved? If, if the rich guy, if the good guy, the commandment-keeping rich guy can't be saved, who can be? If, if, if the people who go to church every Sunday who've, who've got their gold star for Sunday school attendance and, and who do everything right aren't going to go to heaven, who, who can? And Jesus says these wonderful words, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And based on that, some commentators have thought maybe at some later date, maybe later in the day, the young man rethought his response and repented and came back to Jesus. But nothing in the gospel tells us that he did so. You can wish it, you can't say it. With man, it is impossible. But all things are possible with God. But it is, I'm sorry, what is impossible with man, I'm quoting another gospel, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So our Lord is setting us straight here that in the eyes of God, uh, the good person is not the person who's convinced that by his efforts he can make himself good enough to merit, to earn a place in the presence of God for all eternity. But God can bring such a person to repentance. God can bring such a person to the place where they do humble themselves before God like the tax collector. Where they do cry out to God for mercy and grace and forgiveness. Where they do see Jesus Christ is my only hope for salvation. Only what he has done in his suffering on the cross, which we read his third warning to the disciples or forecasting to the disciples is going to happen, his suffering on the cross. By that suffering and death on the cross, offering himself to the Father, bearing the sins of repentant and believing sinners, bearing the wrath of God that our sins deserve, that we deserve, he did open the way for us into the presence of God. He is our hope for forgiveness. And his perfect obedience to God, his perfect righteousness, makes him a truly good man, despite his answer to the rich man. And all who turn to God in reliance on the grace of God in Jesus Christ are given the goodness of Jesus to be their own, are given his perfect righteousness in justification. That's how the tax collector was justified. Jesus knows in giving this parable that the day is coming when he who never knew any sin, that is never personally was involved in any sin, will be made sin by his just and holy father on the cross so that sinners like the tax collector might be made the righteousness of God in him. With what righteousness? 
with the righteousness of Jesus himself, given as a gift of grace. Well, in between these, the parable and the event we've just looked at, there's this other event with the children, the infants. And uh, in, in Matthew and Mark, it's not clear just how young and helpless these children are. They are infants, babes in arms. If you've got your Greek New Testament with you, it's brefe. It's not the usual word for children or even small children. They are babes in arms, helpless infants. And parents bringing their children to Jesus to touch them, to bless them by touching them. Uh, that's kind of like nuisances in the eyes of the disciple. And I'm not going to get into the attitude of the disciples. Jesus says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. That is, even to helpless little infants, the kingdom of God may belong. Which is part of the reason why, from Scripture, part of the reason why we present our children for baptism. Uh, they can be infants, suckling babes, incapable of making any decision for themselves, but welcomed into the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says these words. And they're really directed, I think, to the disciples and also to us. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. There's all kinds of ink spilled on this. Uh, and also a similar passage in Matthew 18. Uh, well, little children are innocent. And we must be innocent. <laughs> Little babies are the most self-centered people on the planet. <laughs> They're not innocent. They've inherited Adam's sin just as the rest of us have inherited Adam's sin. It just hasn't come out yet because <laughs> they're helpless. But what does our Lord mean? How does an infant receive? He just receives. He doesn't do anything to merit his mother's milk. He doesn't do anything to merit getting cleaned up and feeling good. He doesn't do anything to merit any of the love and attention his parents dote upon him. He just receives it. And our Lord is saying, this is the attitude you must have. If you're serious about repenting of your sins and pleading for the mercy of God, he's giving it. He's giving it in his son, Jesus Christ. And you just receive it. That's faith. You hold up empty hands to receive the grace, the saving grace, the citizenship in the kingdom of God that Christ is earned and the Father bestows by the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so this is why the tax collector went home justified, not only because his repentance was genuine, but because the righteousness of Christ was God's gift to him. We'll say retroactively. Because he did not trust in himself. He did not trust in his own goodness. He knew he had none. 
He saw how sinful he was and was truly sorry before God. He didn't brag in the least about his accomplishments, his righteous deeds, his faithfulness in worship, or anything like this. Moved by God, moved by the Holy Spirit of God, he lifted up empty hands, and God poured into them the treasures of heaven through Jesus Christ, his Son. This is the grace by which we alone, we sinners alone, may be made righteous in the eyes of God. This is how sinners like us are made acceptable and righteous in the sight of God. Away with self-righteousness, away with pride, away with finding our hope in ourselves. But all praise to God, all praise to Jesus Christ, and all praise to the Holy Spirit who brings Christ to us and brings us to Christ through the gospel. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, our sins may not be the same as those of the tax collector. But our sins are very real. Our sins are very terrible. And they're assault on your holiness and righteousness. On your claims to our love with our whole heart and all our strength which we have failed to do. We thank you, our Father, that when we are without anything to hope in in ourselves, that we are made to realize that there is nothing we can do to pay for our sins or to cause you to overlook them and count the good things we have done instead that we see Jesus. We see what he has done in his perfect life for us, in his bearing the penalty for our sins on our behalf, in his rising again to be enthroned at your right hand and pour out the Holy Spirit upon sinners like us. Receive our thanksgiving, O God. Move each of us to humility before you, and to true and saving faith, and to live grateful lives to you for your mercies to us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Let us sing in response uh, to the word of God that we have heard. Uh, Jesus, sinners, doth receive. It's somewhere in the bulletin. There it is. (laughs) 